0: not sure that a chastened America is a better America. It may just be a more selfish America. We may just be more like Russia and China, just another great power pursuing selfish interests. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to The Good Fight,
1: the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump. Friends, I have to say that I'm particularly disheartened at the moment about the extent of polarization in the country and the way in which it is making smart people unwilling to stand up for basic principles. We saw some of this at the time of the most acute crisis in Venezuela, where the attacks on Venezuela by some of the least savoury people in the Trump administration made a lot of people on the left unwilling to criticize the horrendous Maduro regime. We saw it a few days ago after the attacks by members of Antifa on Andy Ngo. Ngo is a journalist who chronicles a lot of anti-violence in Portland, and has also written some articles with which I strongly disagree. For example, about supposed no-go zones in various European cities. But whatever you think about Ingo's work, what happened in Portland was unequivocal. He was there to film the protests, to report on them, and he was assaulted, punched, intimidated by members of Antifa. Nevertheless, very well-known people on Twitter defended those actions. The New York Times wrote a report which completely seemed to erase the difference between the violent actions by Antifa and Ingo's determination to cover them. This is a complete disaster. If we're not willing to admit that there are some people who, in some broad sense, and I'm not sure that that's even particularly true of Antifa, on our sides, who can do wrong. If we're unwilling to acknowledge that there are people who, in some very real sense, are on the other side, who can be wronged, or who sometimes say something that is true, as Trump did about the horrors of Maduro's regime, then we have nothing left. Principles matter. If we give up on them completely, all that is left is spoiling the civil war. So friends, think for yourselves, apply our political principles, even when they mean coming to a defense of somebody you don't like, even if it means criticizing somebody who you think of in other contexts as an ally. Today, it's my great pleasure to have George Packer back on the podcast. George is one of the most important chroniclers of American politics, first as a staff writer for The New Yorker and now as a staff writer at The Atlantic. He has a new book called Our Man, Richard Holbrook and the End of the American Century, a fascinating, gripping tale of a complicated, impressive and in certain ways flawed man but also an incredible way of reckoning with American foreign policy in the last 50 years. We had a conversation not just about Holbrook, not just about Vietnam and the Iraq war and Yugoslavia in the 90s and many other things like that, but also about what all of that means for understanding American foreign policy going forward, for thinking about how a big superpower like the United States can and can't stand up for liberal democratic Valleys. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. Thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. It's always great talking to you, Yasha. So I've been reading your fantastic new book. That's a lie, actually. I've been listening to it. So I'm a little startled by your voice because I've been listening to it in a wonderful recording of a professional actor reading it out. And So I nearly started to think that his voice was yours. But you
0: know, the, the funny thing is, Yasha. He's the right voice, and I'm not, because he's older than I am. And I imagine the narrator of the book being older and a little bit seasoned and gravelly the way Joe Barrett is. Oh, no, it is a
1: wonderful dramatization of the book. And I've actually really been enjoying listening to books in audio format in general. It's actually a very nice format for a lot of books. But to get over the preliminaries, why Richard Holbrook? What is it about the life of Richard Holbrook? Which, in your mind, justifies our attention, helps to explain America's predicament and the kind of challenges uh, that we have faced
0: and might face in the coming years? Well, first, he's a kind of mesmerizing character. He lived this big life. His career spanned the decades from Vietnam to Afghanistan. Hillary Clinton once told me he was the zealot of American foreign policy. He was always showing up where the action was, not in charge. He never got to the top, so he isn't one of these world-famous figures. But I think someone a little below the top is actually a better way to understand foreign policy and how power works, because it hasn't quite yet settled into that fixed, uh, soft glow of history. There's no certainty about what it means, and people don't think they already know the story. It's all in a raw action. And so we follow Holbrook through these decades and sort of walked into offices and down hallways and into negotiating rooms and onto battlefields with him and are experiencing foreign policy almost in real time. And so I think it's a closer view of American power than you get from uh, normal biographies. And he also was a complicated man with great ideals and great flaws and big appetites and deep insecurities. And he's a great character to infuse with the history of the last half century. He embodies it in many ways, almost physically. He's big. He's boisterous. He is uncouth. He has a lot of qualities that ISIS hit with America's way of behaving in the world. He also had High ideals and saw America as an indispensable actor. Nothing would happen. No problem would get solved, no big problem without us. So we had to be in the lead. We had to be at the center of it. He had to be at the center of our being at the center. There was this kind of almost innate confidence in his abilities and in our abilities. Even when he saw America fail, he never lost faith in the necessity and the ability of American. Power. So, in some ways, those qualities are both writ small and writ large. The American century, especially this period of it, from Vietnam to Afghanistan, when we kept making mistakes, and Holbrook's confidence turns to overconfidence at times, as ours does. So, he's a character who can carry a lot of the load of history of American world. So I guess I'm trying
1: to understand what the arc of his life is and what the arc of the United States and the American century is. So on the one hand, you could tell a story of a kind of decline. When we first meet Richard Holbrook, he is a very young foreign service officer in Vietnam, and he is full of idealism and energy. And there's something very winning and charming about him. By the end of the book, we have seen some of his ideals come to fruition. We have seen him achieve a very hard one if morally ambiguous, peace in uh, the former Yugoslavia, but he feels embattled and to some extent embittered. So that's one kind of way of reading the American century, that it goes from the Hallison days of optimism in the post-war period to a much more limited ambition and a much more tempered optimism today. Another way of reading it is that it comes full circle, is that actually the problems of Vietnam and the ways in which we ended up in a quagmire without any clear strategic objective actually resembles precisely what happened to the United States in Afghanistan. And towards the end of the book, Richard Holbrook keeps trying to draw the analogy to Vietnam and a lot of his superiors are telling him, stop going on about Vietnam, shut up already. So how do you see the arc of the American century?
0: Both of those are true. Both of those are a way to draw the line. But there's another way that goes back further, Yasha, which is to the moment of his birth. He was born in 1941. That was the year when Henry Luce coined the phrase American century. And even if Luce meant the 20th century, I think it really means the years beginning in 1941 when the U.S. was pulled into World War II and led the Allied effort over. German, and Japanese fascism, and immediately found itself in a global confrontation with Soviet communism. Holbrook's heroes were some of the architects of that post-war period, like Dean Acheson, who pursued the Truman Doctrine in various theaters in Europe and Asia. George Marshall, whose great speech at Harvard launched, in a sense, the saving of Western Europe from communism. George Kennan, who coined the term containment and laid out the policy of containment. And Avril Harriman, who was more of a Holbrook figure, more of an operator than a grand strategist. Those were his heroes. He wanted to be like them. He wanted to do great things and remake the world as they did. But the opportunity didn't come again. The post-war was a unique period because so much of the world was in ruins and looking to the United States to create a structure in which countries could begin to get back on their feet and then could thrive. Vietnam was this shocking failure that hit Holbrook's generation very hard. He was 22 when he was assigned to position not just in South Vietnam, but in the Mekong Delta, where the Viet Cong at that point in 1963 were becoming very strong. In fact, were close to winning certain provinces. Holbrook was the senior American civilian at age 22 in an entire province and was doing classic counterinsurgency, you know, working with local self-defense forces, handing out vulgar wheat and building materials, uh, winning hearts and minds or trying to. But he saw very quickly that it wasn't working. And he was too intelligent and too honest to ignore that. And so he wrote these wonderful letters to his fiance back at Brown University that I have a, a long excerpt from in the book in which he's talking about how he's coming to realize that we're losing. We're losing because we're relying too much on our technology and our firepower and, and our killing civilians and making enemies out of the ones who we don't kill. And we're losing because we're lying to ourselves. We're sending reports up the chain to Saigon and Washington that have a deceptive picture. So Holbrook saw all of that early and gradually came to the conclusion that the war was unwinnable. You could say that that should have been the foreshortened end of what began in 1941 or 1945. but. In fact, Vietnam was a kind of early darkness that hit this young generation and forever shaped them and damaged them. Imagine coming into power, believing that you're going to be the next Acheson Harriman, and your first experience is of the first American defeat in which we are the bad guys. We're the heavy. Holbrook did not fundamentally change his course. He remained what you could call a liberal internationalist. He just thought Vietnam showed that we could not rely on our military to solve problems. We needed to be honest with ourselves. We needed to be careful and skeptical, but we should not take a backseat. We shouldn't pull back from the world. So he kind of continued in the trajectory set by his heroes who came before him. And that continued all the way into the 90s when suddenly with the end of the Cold War, the moment arrived where it seemed as if all of the ideals and capacities and influence of the United States could actually work around the world because there was no longer a Soviet Union to stop us. So that's how I would see that trajectory. With Afghanistan and Iraq, it was a a weird return to Vietnam. Holbrook was haunted by the first war of his career at the end of his life. But by then, we were not going to have a second chance. In other words, a lot of people thought that Vietnam was the end of American power and the beginning of our decline. And there was a lot of declinism in the 1970s, not least from Henry Kissinger. Holbrook was not part of that declinism, and it turned out not to be accurate. We had another 25 years, but with the Iraq and Afghanistan adventures that turned into debacles, and with the rise of competitive powers, China and Russia, and with, I think, the decline of America as a great democracy and as a great middle-class democracy, there was not going to be a second rise. And that's why the book does end with the sense that we've come to the end of the American century.
1: So a straightforward narrative is a tragedy which offers lessons about why the protagonist went wrong, or a story of, you know, triumph out of adversity, where we learn what we can emulate in the hero. You know, this book, both in terms of its character description of Holbrook, but also, I think, in the wider lessons, seems to me to be a lot more mixed. There is, you know, a very clear description of the ways in which American power has gone wrong in the world at various points in the last 50 years. But there's also a very affecting celebration of the moments when American power could help broker peace, for example, in the Balkans. Is there a set of lessons to be drawn
0: from the book? And if so, what are they? I didn't write it with the idea of lessons. I wrote it with the idea of portraying an era through the life of one larger-than-life man And and I want to emphasize that it's
1: a much better book for not being written for lessons. Somebody I was talking to about the book described it as, you know, sort of Saul Bellow novel except factual, which I think captures
0: something of the spirit of the book and of what fun it is reading it. Well, Holbrook is a character out of Bellow in the sense that he is unchained and unloosed and mesmerizing and has a big voice that you can't stop listening to. And I give the reader a chance to hear his voice in these narrative set pieces in each of the three wars that he was involved in, Vietnam, Bosnia, and Afghanistan, using his letters and his diaries to give him the chance to speak for himself. So he has this sort of Henderson-like or Herzog-like quality of needing to express everything and to swallow life whole and to grab the world with both hands and get himself into trouble all the time in doing so. And also a kind of blindness to himself, which I think was his great flaw and maybe his fatal flaw. We'll talk about his relationship with Barack Obama later, but that relationship was doomed in part because of Holbrook's inability to see himself. So th- there are lessons about ambition in the book, I think, about what happens When it's tethered to an ideal, and what happens when it simply becomes a kind of of out-of-control motor that eats everything in its path and never quite arrives at a goal? And in Holbrook's case, both of those are true. One thing that was an abiding concern of his career was refugees. He was maybe the most active member of the Carter administration in the late 70s when Americans wanted to forget there was a place called Vietnam in pushing Jimmy Carter to bring in more and more Southeast Asian refugees, both Vietnamese boat people and Cambodian refugees from the Khmer Rouge and the Vietnam invasion. And that was a great moment. I mean, a million and a half Indo-Chinese came to this country and Holbrook had a lot to do with it. And he did the same with Balkan refugees. And he also was constantly pushing the Obama administration to pay attention to Pakistani refugees. So, he believed that America had to stand for more than its own national interest, its own narrowly defined national interest. He thought we had a universal meaning that we couldn't lose sight of or we would be just another great power. And yet that very, not utopianism, but let's call it idealism, could be a destructive force and was certainly in the case of Iraq, which for Holbrook was an entirely political call. He just thought I need to be for this because I want to be secretary of state and Democrats will get targeted as soft if they don't support this war. So it was a pretty brutal calculation that exploded in his face and Afghanistan, which was a much harder call, but which he saw as a necessary war, but a war that we were losing as we were losing in Vietnam and that we had to find a way out of through negotiations. So Those wars showed, as Vietnam had, that we don't understand other countries as well as we think we do. And the goodness of our intentions is not enough to work our will and, in fact, often gets in the way of it. So those might be some of the foreign policy lessons or the political lessons, as well as the personal lesson about ambition as a positive and negative force.
1: So I do want to go sort of beyond Horbrook, and I've been sort of immersed in Holbrooke gobbling up this book, and you obviously have been immersed in him for a lot longer. But I guess one of the things that struck me when you look at American foreign policy through the eyes of a mid to very high level foreign policy official is the grey on grey. And in that sense, I really do think that the refusal of lessons in this book is an important statement. I mean, I'm struck both by some of the people in the present administration, for example, who very carelessly speak about war with Iran, about war with Venezuela,
0: you know, without any real appreciation of how badly that could go wrong. Not to mention Iran, Yasha, and the idle talk of regime change in Iran, which really gives me the willies.
1: No, absolutely. None of which is to say that I have a different assessment of the nature of the regimes in Iran or in Venezuela than the current administration or the previous administration, I think. Both the ruling thugs in Iran and the ruling thugs in Venezuela are terrible, but the idea that we can just swoop in and completely transform the country is hard to uphold when you've thought seriously about the last 50 years of American foreign policy. But I also am sort of equally repelled by some of the moral clarity or purity that some of the anti-war people tend to have in various situations. Even the way in which they describe themselves, I think is often deeply hypocritical when people who oppose airstrikes in Syria say that they're peace activists and that persuading an administration not to get engaged in Syria is a victory for peace. And you think, look at what's happened in Syria. I'm far from sure that the United States should get involved or how it could get involved. I generally don't know. But if you are describing what the current state is as peace, then you are incredibly provincial and self centered in your view of the moral stakes in the world. And so I genuinely think that one of the great virtues of a book is to show what the situations look like as they are unfolding for somebody who's trying to make sense of them, who's trying to understand them, and who for all of his quite clear and strong personal ambitions
0: is actually trying to affect positive change in the world. Yeah. One thing I learned in following Holbrook's career and watching him making decisions and other people making decisions is if you think it's easy, then you are dangerous because it's a never easy, never an easy call. Holbrook once said to his diary, when we go into another country or have a decision to make about foreign policy, we usually have about 2% of the information we need in order to make an informed decision. 2% because the world is so messy and complicated and because we as a superpower are unusually cut off from the reality of other countries, unusually cut off. We're an empire, but not very interested in the world. And so this void of information leaves human character as the main lever for acting. And so it comes down to people's judgment, to their wisdom, to their restraint, to their moral character as well. And no wonder we get it wrong as often as we get it right. Foreign policy especially, I think, is just a very human activity in which the idea that what we're doing is playing chess or working out abstract equations or measuring, you know, the balance of power around the world doesn't jibe with what I discovered policymakers are doing. They're sitting around in a room far, far away from the events, making decisions based on limited information and the politics of the moment and all the pressures from different agencies of the U.S. government. And so it is a mess and it's very hard to calibrate it and get it right. But if, you know, you think you figured it out in Vietnam and then along comes Bosnia. Vietnam, the lesson is don't get involved. Bosnia the lesson turns out to be if America doesn't get involved that war will never end and hundreds of thousands of people will be killed and holbrook saw that right away cuz he went to sarajevo as a private citizen who couldn't get a job in the clinton administration at the start and spent 24 hours during the siege and immediately realized this is a war of aggression and europe is powerless to stop it and so we need to be involved and he spent the next two and a half years in and out of government, trying to get the United States involved and finally did. And Holbrook was the main force in negotiating the end of the war. So the lesson of Vietnam turned out to be the opposite lesson you needed to see Bosnia clearly. Then Bosnia became the lesson, except it failed the United States in Iraq, where we thought that military power could, you know, bring about conditions for whatever, peace and democracy, and it didn't happen because our power doesn't know how to change cultures and stabilize regions.
1: So for somebody who feels these two moral imperatives at the same time, as I think Holbrook did and as I think you want people to feel once they've read the book, which is that there are situations in which the United States is capable of doing terrible damage because of a mixture of hubris and self-interest and naivete. But there's also situations in which a failure to act by the United States, as it originally did in Bosnia and as it did, of course, in Rwanda, can have terrible consequences for the world as well. What does that make you think about how the United States should orient its foreign policy? I mean, if one of the 78 current Democratic presidential candidates had read the book and said, George, this is a fantastic book, I learned a lot from it would you mind writing one of those Holbrookian memos to the incoming president about how they should think about foreign policy?
0: What would your answer be? I'd say I'm a writer, not an <laughs> advisor. That would be the truth. But if they held a gun to my head and forced me to sit down and write a government memo or an advisor's memo, which is something I would hate to have to do, I think one thing I would say is there's a current idea on the left that what we need to do is sort of unilaterally disarm our power. The less of America, the better. We just need to have a smaller military, limited ambitions, be good on human rights and humanitarianism, but why should we think that we have any more role to play than India or China or Brazil? And my feeling about that is that that's an NGO you're describing, not a nation, because powerful nations exercise power. And the alternative to the Holbrook vision, which is America in the lead, both as a source of inspiration and influence, and also as pursuing its own interests, the alternative to that is not a kinder, gentler America. It's Trump's America. Selfish, short-sighted, bullying, giving the finger to our democratic allies, and sucking up to dictators, and renegotiating everything we ever agreed to, or, or simply tearing it up because we don't think it serves our own interests. In other words, I'm not sure that a chastened America is a better America by definition. It may just be a more selfish America. And a more bullying and destructive America. We may just be more like Russia and China, just another great power pursuing selfish interests. And people who thought that they were steering us towards some vision of peace and prosperity around the world might end up feeling a little bit of regret for the disappearance of that Holbrook vision in which we were in the lead.
1: I don't imagine, and you might have the answer to this, that you know Richard Holbrooke and Noam Chomsky ever squared off against each other at some public debate. And I very much doubt that they would have enjoyed having lunch with each other privately. But what do you think would be, since you mentioned it, the sort of far left critique of American foreign policy over the last fifty years? And what do you think would be a sympathetic response? What would somebody like Holbrooke have said in return to that about? why, for all of its failings, the attempt
0: to use American power for good is necessary. Well, the critique is pretty obvious because it's made a lot and it gets a lot of airtime, but the critique is that we've basically been a destructive empire that does what empires do. They exploit other countries. They send their troops abroad to kill people in order to pursue our own selfish interests, whether it's resources or shipping lanes or some ideological arrogance that says democratic capitalism is the best and we need to impose it everywhere. So it's just us as a dark negative power that whenever it acts, it acts selfishly and ends up getting people killed and doing no good or very little good. And of course, there's lots and lots of examples you can point to. And my book begins with one of the biggest, Vietnam, and ends with another of the biggest, Afghanistan. And in between, there's uh, a lot of nasty Reagan-era Cold War ventures, and there's the Iraq War. So there's never a shortage of evidence until you start looking at alternatives where we don't get involved or where we do get involved, and actually the results are, if not perfect, at least better, like the end of the war in Bosnia, such as su- some of Holbrook's lesser-known interventions In foreign policy, like organizing the Security Council to intervene in East Timor in the late 90s when West Timor's militias were going on a rampage after East Timor voted for independence and the Security Council passed uh, a peacekeeping resolution. The Australians were the pointy end of the spear, but Holbrook was a big part of pushing that through. It's ironic because in the 70s, Holbrooke, in a different capacity, he was UN ambassador in the late 90s, but in the 70s, he was the assistant secretary for East Asia and his position on the annexation of East Timor by Indonesia was, let's turn a blind eye to this because it's more important to have an anti-communist ally in the region and to sell them fighter planes. It was a kind of pure realpolitik Cold War view. Without the Cold War, he was able To, I'd say, align humanitarianism with power. And you see that in the couple of instances, the most famous and important being Bosnia. So anyone who wants to make a blanket case for the US as a negative force has to ignore a great deal of evidence as well. And I'd say Holbrook would probably answer of course, we make mistakes, and of course, power becomes irresponsible and arrogant, but we can learn from those mistakes if we actually pay attention to them and are self-critical. But the lesson that we need to simply pull back and build our own cities and schools ignores the fact that the rest of the world looks to us for leadership. I mean, anyone who travels abroad to a great many countries that are in trouble finds that people are always asking for more, not less American presence. Not everywhere, certainly, but I was in Bosnia recently, and that was what I heard everywhere I went. Where have the Americans gone? You would hear that in Ukraine. You would hear that in Burma. You would hear that in a lot of places. And not that we should be militarily involved, but we do stand for something. And even if we've lost faith in it, the rest of the world kind of is still looking for that and is disappointed when it seems that we have laid down the words that we used to live by and to try to behave in the world by.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things that was going through my head while you were saying this is that actually when you go back 30 or 40 years, it's not really clear who has had the better judgment on things. I think a lot of how Jeremy Corbyn in Britain sells himself, or something like Nolan Chomsky here would sell themselves, is to say, you know, I have been right on foreign policy at every turn. But when you actually look a little bit closer, that turns out not to be the case. Between them, they have supported at various stages Pol Pot, the theocratic regime in Iran, Saddam Hussein in Iraq, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. Slobodan Milosevic in Serbia. Slobodan Milosevic in Serbia. So their record at judging who is good and bad is actually very bad. Whereas when you go through the biography of Richard Holbrook, with the one uh, hugely important exception of Iraq, he tends to have the right judgment. In Vietnam, he arrives full of idealism and optimism, but very quickly he starts to understand that this is a very fraught and perhaps misguided enterprise. He doesn't buy Milosevic's propaganda and understands that we are dealing with a Serb war of uh, aggression in Yugoslavia and has a clear-eyed view of some of the other leaders in the region as well. Early on, he becomes skeptical about the ability of the United States to win in Afghanistan. But at the same time, of course, all of these lessons are sort of half-effectual because being in the machinery of government, he is somewhat constrained in what he can say. And the logic of the situation Pulls the United States in, even in situations where a lot of the officials understand some of the dangers that are facing the country.
0: Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that account, and I could add, Yasha, that one thing that is making it harder and harder for a Holbrook to be heard is the militarization of our foreign policy, which he first saw in Vietnam, where it was the military that was driving strategy. Once we got in with ground troops. And ending with that in Afghanistan, where the surge of late 2009 and the long debate around it in the White House was all about troops and not about talking to the Taliban, which Holbrook wanted but couldn't speak up about because he didn't have the standing. He had lost the trust of Obama. So Obama, who was a skeptic of military force in Afghanistan, nonetheless went along with the generals for about a year and a half, almost as if to show it couldn't work, but didn't pursue other strategies of diplomacy that might have worked. And that shows that when we turn to the military to solve problems around the world, that's when we are going to get in trouble. In Bosnia... Diplomacy and force were in alignment. They were working together and it worked and in Kosovo in a different way and maybe a messier and dissatisfying way. The same is true. And so we've given up on diplomacy partly because we Americans don't have the patience for it and we don't have the knowledge of other countries and we trust in our technology too much. But that's one of the lessons of Holbrook's life.
1: So where do we find ourselves now? Some of these forever wars that are starting to be called are still going on. There's still American troops of one form or another in Afghanistan. And the situation in Iraq continues to be unstable. We see a lot of other countries destabilized in a way that could seriously harm American interests and pose very real risks to national security without us quite knowing what we can possibly do about it, like in places like in Libya and, of course, Syria. And then as a strategic challenge, we see the rise of a new superpower in the case of China, which does not have a diametrically opposed ideological system, as we used to say about the Soviet Union, but will challenge mark for its global hegemony. And I guess that each of those presents a challenge which does echo themes of the last 50 years. The first is the problem of ongoing wars from which there's no clear exit strategy and where it's really unclear what success would mean. And the second is that just as it was harder to prioritize humanitarian considerations when American policymakers had a sense of existential threat from the expansion of communism, the temptation to support autocratic clients or ease up the pressure on countries to democratize May grow as the United States feels China to be a real competitor. So, is there any hope that we will get more things right in the next 50 years than in the last? And if so, what should we be bearing in mind as we're trying to make sense of whatever
0: riddles will face us? I think the first thing to face is that we just will not have the clout that we had after World War II or in the 80s after Vietnam or in the 90s after the end of the Cold War. We just will not be that power ever again, because those were unique circumstances. And we now, as you say, have competitors. And those competitors seem to have more energy and confidence than we do. And you can't separate the health of our democracy and the health of our society from the influence we have around the world, partly because it's as a democracy that America has been able to achieve that influence. Once the world sees us as a sick democracy or a democracy with such a polarized politics and such an unequal economy that we can't even function as a unified United States any longer, then how do we declare ourselves to be a model or a beacon for the rest of the world as we thought of ourselves after World War II? So that's the first thing It'll never be the same. The second is, I think a lot depends on whether Donald Trump gets reelected. If he does, I think that marks a permanent change and we just will not be able to undo it. And our relations with allies and our ability to win their trust and convince them that we're good partners, reliable partners, that we believe in institutions and in documents that we sign and in international arrangements that we largely created, well, that will be gone. If Trump loses, then it's all up for grabs. But right now, the Democrats running for president, the 78 of them that you mentioned, aren't talking about foreign policy at all. It's as if the next president won't be responsible for foreign policy. And that leads me to think the Democrats don't have a foreign policy. There's a disenchantment with a muscular foreign policy on the part of ordinary voters on both sides, Democrats and Republicans. And it's hard for leaders to get out in front of that and try to reverse it because they won't have public support during the election. So they seem to have decided to just mute their voices on these issues, all of which require difficult calls and tough judgments. So... Yeah, I think we're in for a stretch of either America first or America alone or America withdrawing. And it's hard to imagine, let's say, a President Joe Biden simply creating a whole new age of American supremacy and um, leadership because the country isn't there anymore. The circumstances aren't and the minds of the voters are not. And I want to add something about Holbrook here, which is a dark side of Holbrook, is that he was part of an elite that he desperately wanted to join, both financial and political power elite, that didn't behave so responsibly in the way they ran their own affairs and the country's affairs, especially in the period of the early 2000s. There was just a lot of petty corruption and self-enrichment schemes and blasé attitudes towards sending other people's sons and daughters off to war without paying a personal price that I think cut them off from voters and, and in some ways may have been a factor in leading to Donald Trump who could play on the alienation and the cynicism that came from the heart of the country, seeing that one group of people was paying the price for the Policies of another group of people. So, there too, an elite in a democracy can't lose that trust or else it can't work a policy that the public will support. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking
1: about the famous Hannah Arendt argument that uh, power is not zero sum, that when we are able to cooperate with each other, we're able to achieve more. And the disdain for allies that the United States has under Donald Trump is certainly an extreme case of that. Conversely, there are contexts in which power is zero-sum. And certainly in the international arena, it is often one side or another that is able to set the basic rules of engagement when there are conflicts. And reading the book has made me think very hard about what the United States can achieve and how easily good attentions can go awry. But looking around at the utter ruthlessness with which countries like Russia and China, not to speak of places like Saudi Arabia, are using their power. It's not clear to me that completely disengaging and letting them run the show is going to be better, not just for America, but for people in just about any country.
0: Right, so the only thing worse than the American century is the end of the American century. But as you
1: were saying, in the end, any ability by the United States to exercise its power in a constructive way, and to have global credibility for that, is to reform itself domestically. So I do want to close by talking for a little bit about our domestic situation in the United States, of which I know you're a very keen observer. And don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to pick a 2020 uh, presidential candidate or put any more guns to your head to write memos. But you know, what is the best case scenario? I've been thinking about that a lot recently. If we actually learn from the Trump nightmare and we are able to overcome it as a country that is more united than seems probable or perhaps even possible right now, what do you think would be some of the political vision, some of the principles, some of the commonalities that we could base our country on? Small question.
0: Well, you know, I wrote a book about all this. My last book, The Unwinding, which is about the erosion of our democracy and of our middle class, and of our democratic institutions, which came out in 2013 and didn't predict Trump, but sketch the landscape in which Trump has been possible.
1: And I sometimes joke that, you know, I spoke about the crisis of democracy before it was cool. You wrote this just kaleidoscopic, fantastic book about it way before it
0: was cool. Well, and The Unwinding was about America at Home, but Our Man, my new book, is sort of The Unwinding Abroad and you could see them in tandem with each other. I don't think there's any solution to our division. We are not, the United States is. We've gone back to that pre-Civil War, the United States are. We're no longer a country that can be spoken of as a unified polity. And I have a pretty cold, realistic view that That will not change until the Republican Party is defeated several times badly at the polls, because I just don't think the Republican Party, which is the main driver of this erosion of democracy and of democratic institutions, I just don't think it's going to turn around and come back from the cliff it's already gone over until it loses. So I don't have a view of rising above partisanship that could somehow succeed. It just won't until that party is bludgeoned into sanity. And I don't know if that's going to happen anytime soon, because every time Democrats think that they found either the savior candidate or the demographic transformation devoutly to be wished, it turns out to be true because they haven't talked to the millions of people in the country who don't agree with them. And there are a lot of them and they are not all about to die out as some progressives seem to expect. So, could take a long time. And until then, my prediction is, which is something else I hate to do, we will continue to have this tremendously poisoned, divisive politics in which the escalation is on both sides, but the real driver of it is the Republican Party. So what that means for foreign policy is we might continue to swing wildly from what Obama represented, which was something of a ratcheting down of our commitments a managing of our decline, but a renewed emphasis on finding partners and on embedding our power in multilateral efforts, like the Paris Treaty, like trade treaties, like his talk about nuclear nonproliferation, which never really came to fruition, and like some of his uh, diplomatic initiatives. And then on the other side of the pendulum, the you know, kind of brutal selfishness and narrowness of a Trump policy that says, what's in it for us? That's always the question. What's in it for us? They're screwing us. We're going to screw them back. Joe Biden seems to think that he is the synthesis of that thesis and antithesis. And I think that's a good campaign slogan or strategy, but it's false because there's another party and there is half the country. You know, we have become one of those countries, Yasha, in which the divisions are so deep that neither side believes the other truly exists or truly represents the country. You know, like Iran is a bit that way, where there's the besiege on one side and the democratic reformers on the other, and they both think that they are the future of the country and that the other somehow is illegitimate. Which is one of the interesting
1: ways in which the legitimacy of democratic institutions suffers because if you are in some common social networks of people on the other side and you are aware of how they see the world, then it's not astounding to you that you sometimes lose elections, whereas on both sides. And in this respect, I think Democrats and Republicans are similar. In many other respects, as you rightly said, they are deeply asymmetrical. But there just seems to be something wrong and illegitimate when the other side wins, because it cannot possibly be. Look around you. Uh, I don't know anybody who would possibly vote Trump. And so if he's winning, it must be because the system is somehow rigged. I and mean, of course, there are some real problems in the political system. But that drives a real decline of the way in which elections can settle political disputes, which I think is quite concerning. And another thing that I was thinking is a sort of conflation that I think is happening in our politics at the moment between the obliteration of the Republican Party in its current form, which I think is a perfectly legitimate and probably a necessary political goal, and the obliteration of all of the people who have ever voted for Donald Trump, which may be tempting as a goal, but will hardly be able to unite the country or to build a fair society because it is very close to half of the U.S. population. In an odd way, as we are looking forward to the hopefully end of the Trump regime, and it's far from clear to me that Trump will lose in 2020, but it's probably at least 50% likely, we have to think of a problem of transitional justice. Certainly in Germany, a little bit before the book opens, one of the lessons of transitional justice was that you can have perfect justice or you can have democracy, but you probably can't have both. And so I think quite shrewdly, the Allies decided to tolerate a lot of terrible, terrible human beings who had committed unspeakable crimes during the Third Reich, as mid and in some cases high level officials, because it would get them on board with democracy. And of course, one of the things that the United States did wrong in Iraq and in Afghanistan is not to go for that strategy, to go for a strategy of perfect justice in which the Baathists or the Taliban were not given any positions in the government. And that's admirable at some moral level. But it probably also helps to explain why those interventions went
0: so terribly wrong. And so when Lindsey Graham comes crawling back to the center and tries to get on The Daily Show again and say that he's the one reasonable Republican in Congress, we'll have to give him a second chance. Well, that's the big question. And
1: part of the answer in the case of post-war Germany, which I think was a deeply flawed answer, but one that worked, was... That, I don't mean this in the literal sense here, you execute some of the people on the top and then you pardon and turn a blind eye to a lot of people just below that. And we may have to adopt some version of that where we publicly shun and shame some of the worst offenders, but we at least try to accommodate, I don't know about the politicians, but certainly the people who are seduced by that.
0: Not only accommodate them, but try to, win their vote. I mean, any Democrat who doesn't see part of his or her job as being to persuade people who voted for Trump to vote for them is going to lose. And part of that means not stigmatizing all of them, not calling them by nasty names and not assuming that we understand their reasons and that those reasons are somehow evil and unacceptable. But there's a lot of that on the left right now. I mean, even the never-Trumpers who are writing mea culpa's and some of his harshest critics are unacceptable to some progressives because of one sin or another from the past. And that's a, in some ways a mirror image on the left of the rigidity and the punitiveness of Trump's, you know, hardcore supporters, and it's self-destructive for Democrats, too. So some Democrat needs to figure out how to speak to Trump voters in a way that doesn't condescend to them, doesn't pat them on the head and say we understand, uh, but also doesn't stigmatize them. You know, one of the striking things you spoke of these two separate nations
1: that we're starting to speak of the United States again, or should in a way, in the plural rather than in the singular. You know, the one interesting thesis that both Democrats and Republicans seem to agree on, and I've mentioned this on this podcast before, is the idea of the inevitable demographic majority for Democrats. And it drives the deep xenophobia and racism on parts of the right. When you look at things like Michael Anton's essay on the Flight 93 election, but it also drives some of the triumphalism and the sense that they don't need to speak to Trump voters on the left. And the thing that strikes me as odd about that is both that I think that this is actually a fool's errand as a prediction. But if you tried to predict the politics of 2010 by looking at the voting behavior of Irish Americans and Italian Americans in 1960, you would have gone disastrously wrong. But also that it's such a limited vision of what America will look like, because if you wind up with a country in which I can walk down the street 40 years from now, and when I see a black face, I know they're voting for the Democrats. And when I see a white face, I know that they may always be in the minority, but they will most likely vote for a deeply Trumpian populist Republican Party.
0: That would still be a nasty society to live in for all of us. When there's a majority and a minority that's defined racially or even geographically, there's no solution. There's no common ground, which is why the constant talk of whiteness as a negative thing, which I hear on the left all the time, is so polarizing and divisive and it may feel good. And it may even have justification in the cause of equality and justice, but Politically, it's destructive, and it's not going to help the Democratic Party either. I think the two themes that a Democrat can win on and can win some of the lost Trump vote on are political corruption and economic inequality, both of which appeal to the idea that the little guy has gotten screwed and continues to get screwed by Trump just as much as by sort of Clinton-era Globalization optimism. And if they can stick to those themes and not get cornered into outlandish positions or litmus tests about whether you believe that violent felons should be able to vote from prison, then I think the Democratic Party would be acting like the Democratic Party historically. Those are the themes that are in sync with the party's origins and with a majority of Americans, regardless of geography, race, or gender.
1: I agree with that. The one thing I would add perhaps is that I don't ever advocate that Democrats should avoid talking about some of the ways in which uh, groups in our society are currently under attack. But I think it makes a huge difference how it is that they talk about
0: that. The question is, of course, and I'm not saying they should at all, not for a second. The question is, do they talk about it in the light of a universal idea of fairness and equality, which political corruption and a stratified economy are the opposite of? Or do they talk about it in the context of a zero-sum sort of reapportionment of, of power? And if it's the latter, then I think it's destructive. But if it's part of a universal commitment, then it's not only a positive discourse, but it's entirely necessary.
1: That seems exactly right to me, that there's a sometimes subtle difference, but one which I think a lot of voters really pick up on. You know, if Trump engages in white identity politics, which I think is an accurate description, then we should engage in our own form of identity politics. And so we are going to be the party of Latinos and African-Americans and the LGBTQ community. And Trump can be the party of white people. And we think we're going to be able to cobble together a majority. There's no moral appeal in that. There's nothing noble about that. It doesn't hold any pull on members of the other group. But if you are saying at the moment, there's a lot of people in our society who are under terrible attack. Donald Trump is prejudiced
0: against these various groups and he has done horrible things. Let's not forget immigrants, Muslims, Latinos who really do get most of his attention more than LGBTQ and Black Americans. It's those groups that are his most common scapegoats.
1: Absolutely. And so we will fight for children who are separated from the parents at the border, not because they're Latino and we stand up for Latinos, but because they're human beings and they deserve not to be separated from the parents. We're going to stand up for the rights of Dreamers, not because that is a voting group that we want to mobilize or because we think of ourselves as advocating the interests of this group, but because they're our fellow Americans and they deserve to have the same rights and opportunities as any other people who grew up in this country. So I think it's a matter of a small
0: but important shift in that respect. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right that voters pick it up. They know when you're pandering or when you're appealing to narrow group interest and when you're speaking to a higher idea of justice and of what America means. And I think neither Democrats nor Republicans have entirely given up on the idea that America means something more than one more selfish world power. And I think for a candidate to have a, a chance of beating Trump, who's done more damage to that idea than any president in my lifetime, they need to be able to appeal to that idea too.
1: Well, that sounds like one lesson from your book, after all, that we need to always strive to be something more than a self interested world power. And we need in domestic politics to always strive to do something more than fight for the self interest of various groups.
0: I'll accept that, Yasha as my one takeaway for readers. Everything else is up to them. And I hope the book gives them both pleasure and illumination. And I never endorse books on this podcast, and I don't really do
1: book interviews here. And I won't tell people that they should read the book if they're interested in American foreign policy or anything like that, because that I think is obvious. I will say that if you've been looking for a good novel, pick up the book. Which is not a novel. Which is not a novel, to be very clear, but I think has all of the good qualities of a novel. Thanks, Yasha. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, George. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. This podcast is generously supported by the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be liked, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod.com. At gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative
0: Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces.